Here we go. Good morning, everybody. Good morning, Brennan. Good morning, Chris. How are you doing? Uh, you know, I'm hoping that our internet stays strong through the uh, the storm that we're all confronted with in Atlanta right now. So hoping yeah. it stays. Hope we hope we get it. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it is it is a blustery day. That's for sure. Uh, if you if anyone out there hears uh, some deep rumbling on Facebook, uh, that's what that is. That's thunder rolling through the area. But uh, it, it should be shouldn't be too long. And uh, if you're uh, with us in the in the south, um, you're going to be I'm sure experiencing this at some point today too. Uh, but uh, thanks for everyone for joining us and for being here with us. Uh, this is Office Hours Bible Study. This is uh, uh, something that is a collaboration between Columbia Theological Seminary and uh, First Presbyterian Church of Atlanta in Midtown, and we are so grateful for both of those institutions for helping host uh, this meeting. Uh, my name is Brennan Breed. I'm a professor. Uh, associate Professor um, of Old Testament at Columbia Theological Seminary, and uh, I uh, am joined here by Chris Holmes. And Chris, why don't you say hi? Hey, what's up? Yeah, I'm, I'm Chris Holmes, and I am on staff at First Presbyterian Church of Atlanta. I've been there since July, and I have a super long and precocious title, but I'm the Scholar-in-Residence and Director of Biblical and Theological Education. And it's a wonderful, you know, sort of hybrid position between uh, position between the church and the academy uh, and theological education. It's an awesome, awesome opportunity. Well, we just, we just want to say uh, welcome to anyone and everyone who wants to join us. Uh, this is primarily um, an idea that came about between a conversation uh, between Chris and I. Uh, a conversation um, that is going to be open to anyone and everyone who wants to join, but primarily it's designed for folks who've been displaced from their communities uh, during uh, this coronavirus um, crisis, uh, during the pandemic. Uh, and uh, it, a lot of people have uh, been moved out of communities or can't meet um, as they normally would. Um, so we just want to welcome you to join us uh, during our Bible study uh, on Sunday mornings. Um, we're going to meet from 930 uh, to 1030 uh, Eastern Standard Time uh, every week for the next five weeks. And uh, then we'll reassess and see what uh, if we want to keep going or, or change it up. Uh, so if you have suggestions or ideas about what we can do or should do or um, how to make things better, please feel free to be in touch with us. You can get in touch with us on our website, uh, or our, our Facebook group, uh, the Office Hours Bible Study Facebook group, uh, and you can also just feel free to email us. I'm sure you can track us down on the internet, Brendan Breed and Chris Holmes. Um, and uh, yeah, we're, we're, we're looking for feedback, so thanks. Uh, our basic idea, I think at least, um, is that we want to meld in some way uh, our uh, passion for academic biblical studies um, with our faith uh, and our work in faith communities. So um, just to give you a, a brief intro for me, um, so uh, I am uh, an Episcopalian um, who uh, uh, grew up um, in a, a home that was a, a sort of Roman Catholic and Methodist um, at certain times. My mom and my dad uh, come from uh, different religious backgrounds, um, but, uh, but grew up kind of uh, part of the Christian community um, and uh, over time became Episcopalian. Uh, so that informs in some ways my uh, understanding of liturgy and practice and so on. Um, but right now I am uh, also the theologian in residence at First Presbyterian Church of Marietta uh, here in Georgia, just north of Atlanta. So that also informs my work. Uh, and I teach at a seminary uh, where I'm teaching students who are primarily uh, being trained to go out and work in the church uh, or uh, in nonprofits or in some way uh, trying to think of their work in terms of ministry. So that informs what I do and how I approach it. Also, uh, I, like Chris, uh, come uh, at least in part from the great state of Colorado. Uh, so uh, Chris, uh, what about you? Yeah, yeah. I, thanks for that. Um, definitely from Colorado. You got that right. Although I'm from a little bit further south than you, I believe, in Colorado Springs. Um, 
but yeah, I think I think for me that you know this study that we're doing together is really at the heart of of what has been envisioned with my position at First Presbyterian Church, which is um, to facilitate uh, church-based theological education, to create opportunities um, for lay people to study, and that for me is sort of rooted in a very deep sense of my own vocation, which has been. Uh, has been consistent for a number of years um, to study scripture and teach scripture and make it make it relevant and applicable to people's lives, um, even as we study it carefully and maybe even critically in a, in the best sense of the word. Um, and so this opportunity to sort of collaborate with you and with Columbia and First Press is sort of right in the wheelhouse, not only of what I'm doing at first, but also sort of what I've been doing for most of my uh, professional and adult life. And so. Um, just super stoked uh, to yeah. be here. Well, thanks, and I am too. Uh, and thank you again for for wanting to be a part of this collaboration. So, um, and I I uh, have one announcement to make, but then also a question for Chris. But the announcement is, um, if you are interested in joining this study in a deeper way, um, if you're interested in looking at our syllabus that we've put together, there's no final exam. Don't worry, there's no tests. Uh, but we did want to put together kind of a syllabus to help you flow, follow the flow of the class, um, uh, but also to read along and read deeper uh, and see some audiovisual resources uh, online if you want to, if you're interested in any particular issue. We also have some readings um, that we would have assigned in a typical seminary class or graduate um, uh, graduate studies class. Um, so if you're interested in any of that stuff, uh, there's there's a link that we'll post uh, beneath um, uh, this video, uh, but also it's posted several other places in the Facebook group. Um, but it's a registration link. It's free to register. No, it takes no time to, to, to do that. Um, so just sign up and you'll get a quick password to a, a folder, like an internet folder, um, and you'll be able to download all that stuff uh, immediately. So feel free to follow along with us, read ahead um, or anything like that, and, uh, and, and feel free to engage us with questions that come from those readings and resources. But the big question I have this morning is, Chris, when we started talking about this study, I asked you, uh, what do you think would be great uh, to, to study here? And I, I came up with a suggestion that maybe wasn't as good, uh, but you came up with the best suggestion, which was uh, Philippians. Now, why uh, did you want us to walk through Philippians uh, slowly and carefully over five weeks um, during this time of COVID? Yeah, so I think, well, one, I think it's it's the the length of time, sort of a four to five week short study is ideal rather than, you know, asking people to sign up for a 12 week study of the New Testament or the Old Testament. Um, but I also think that Paul's letter to the Philippians is relevant to our situation for a number of reasons. One, Paul is writing from prison. He is confined and um, most likely um, he's in some sort of house arrest, although we're not certain exactly what that might look like. And I thought, wow, we are talking to a community, to communities that are in their own sort of house arrest um, with this quarantine and are dealing with um, absence and trying to be present when you're absent. What does community look like? And I think Paul in general is just a great reminder that, that this is not the first time that the church has experienced displacement in its history, but actually most of Paul's ministry was spent um, corresponding with people that he couldn't be in physical proximity with. And so I thought, man, Philippians and Paul in general is a great book for us to study in this time. And um, Philippians is one of the most joyful letters in the New Testament. It is, it is a, a, a letter that just bursts with friendship and participation and, and sort of collaboration among, among a community that Paul clearly loves. And so I thought, you know, in the midst of the news, the news feed, why not bring in some 
some some really um, some hopeful and joyful literature. And so that's what that's what my, my thought was. And um, and I was able to pay you enough money to convince you that it was a good idea. So I'm glad that that we're we're doing some Philippians for the next several weeks. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, that's that's great. And I, I immediately when you said it, I thought, wow, yeah, uh, confinement, uh, crisis, uh, sickness, e even. <clears throat> And joy. So all that is, is covered in the letter, which is a, a pretty neat thing. So uh, before we even jump in, I think it's really helpful. Sometimes people, especially Christians, uh, you know, just kind of pick up the, the Bible and start to read it and kind of imagine it speaks directly to them, directly to their own context. And really, we don't have to do any pre-work uh, thinking about what how we read or our own context or our own selves. Uh, that's something we can get into over the, the span of the next Five weeks when we talk to, um, to to guests. By the way, we'll have guests uh, every week following um, that come from a variety of different backgrounds and uh, folks who can, uh, in some way, bring some of their own personal experience uh, into this study too. Just like Chris and I bring our own personal experience, and anyone joining us, you bring yours. Um, so one of the things that I think is really helpful is for us to kind of just get some of that stuff out, like who are we, but also what are our big presuppositions, our big theological presuppositions, like what ideas do we carry with us that, that, that kind of inform our reading? And those aren't going to be the same for all of us. Um, and being aware of those is oftentimes very helpful for us to, to, uh, to dialogue with one another about what we're reading. So Chris, I mean, would you mind just sharing for a few moments some of your own theological presuppositions? Like what, what sort of things just inform your general reading of the Bible? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's great. And I'm, I'm eager to hear yours as well. And I'll, I'll try to be as clear and as brief as possible. I think one of the things that I learned when I was on faculty um, at Maccabee School of Theology is that um, most of the questions that people have about the text are not really content questions. And most biblical scholars are really good at content questions. We, we know the ancient world. We sort of know um, the ways in which these, these writings have been formed and have been used. Um, but most of the questions that sort of sort of creep up in questions after lectures and discussions are questions related to the authority of scripture, um, the inspiration of scripture. Theological questions are really what often drive the conversations about these texts. And so as I've sort of been working out, I, I do, I, I, I really wrestle with um, what what the analogy of the incarnation with scripture that um you know the church took two or three hundred years to figure out just in what ways jesus was both fully human and fully divine and when i invite students into a close reading of a text i ask them to hold that as well that scripture by analogy has both human elements and divine elements um it's 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 this this amalgamation of of God's breath, God's inspiration, but also a very human system. And so when we, when we think about Paul in particular, um, if we stick to the text and we say, you know, where does, the, where does the text say that the Holy Spirit took over Paul's brain and told him to write what he wrote? Well, it doesn't say that. And actually, Paul's letters are very human in many ways. I mean, he's, he's talking about his own opinions, his own thinking, his own, um, his own, his own logic. And it's only the church that sort of says these are God's word to the people of God somehow. Um, and so the, the sort of two theological presuppositions that, I've, that I use with regard to this is, is one, it's the analogy of uh, the creation story from Genesis where God takes dust and breathes into this dust. He takes very earthly dust um, and in, in breathing into it, it becomes a living thing. 
And so when scripture is described as a living thing, I, I, I sort of understand the, the same uh, similar process that God takes these very human voices, these very human perspectives and breathes God's Holy Spirit into it so that the inspiration of scripture isn't just something that happened back in the past, but it's something that happens in the moment, in the preaching moment, in the, in the moment of devotional study, in the small group Bible study, or in the seminary classroom. Um, and the second sort of presupposition that I, that I bring uh, has to do with us as interpreters, and that is that we are all users of scripture. Um, as, as we desire to make meaning out of scripture and make it meaningful for our lives, we make certain decisions about scripture. And I don't think that we're always aware of those decisions, but we, we prioritize parts of scripture. We use certain parts of scripture to interpret other parts of scripture. And so we all have a role. We have agency. This is something that your colleague Mitzi Smith has said in, in her book on the int introduction to the New Testament, um, that we all have an agency as interpreters. Um, we all are active interpreters. And, and so I sort of have that, the one presupposition about the nature of scripture and perhaps one presupposition about the nature of us as interpreters. Uh, I could probably say a lot more, but I want to hear from you. What about you? What are your theological presuppositions? Yeah, thanks. I mean, and, and uh, there's a lot of overlap um, with yours, uh, but I mean, I'm an Old Testament professor, so I'm going to come at this from an Old Testament perspective. Uh, but yeah, I, I find it really helps when I first start communicating with students um, about the Bible uh, that I have a, this theological commitment that God speaks to us in ways that we can understand, um, that God is trying to communicate in some way. That's that. I mean, some people don't think that's true, but I mean, for me, that's like kind of the ultimate wager is, is the divine trying to communicate with us. And if you think so, then hopefully uh, God would be trying to communicate with us in a way that makes sense to us, that we can understand. But also we are really limited beings. I mean, human beings, we, you know, we're limited in what we know and how we think about things and our concepts. We, we know that our eyes and our ears filter out almost all of what, what we think we see. Um, that is, we, most of our sensory uh, world is, is actually filtered out before it gets to our brains. Uh, we interpret things and understand things um, even before we sometimes notice them. Uh, that is to say that we uh, are, are set up with kind of cultural, linguistic, uh, cognitive, you know, mind kind of filters um, that structure our world for us. Uh, and we can always learn new things that help change those or help us notice things we didn't notice before or help us reinterpret things. But if God's going to speak to us in ways that we understand, it's going to have to be through like human language. It's going to have to be through human culture, you know, stuff we already know. Um, so God's going to have to meet us somewhere and then try to expand us and push our understandings further. Um, but it's going to have to start in that moment of contact. And like you said, there's an incarnational analogy here um, that Christ comes uh, into a fully human community with a human language and human culture and human concepts. And what this means is that God, uh, I like how John Calvin talks about this. It's like, you know, condescending, God condescends. I mean, it sounds like a bad thing, like God's being mean to us or something. Um, but what John <laughs> Calvin means by this is that, you know, God is, huge and uh, immense and beyond all understanding and so on. But so if God's going to be understood, God's going to have to limit that in some way. God's going to have to kind of smush the God, 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 God self into a little uh, packet of information that we can kind of in, engage and understand. And that's going to necessarily mean that God's going to be limited in our understanding. We're not really going to um, know everything about God. So if we accept that from the very start, that God's going to be kind of coming to, to us and understand, trying to get us to understand God in culturally bound ways, then that means that when we read the Bible, we're reading the witness, the, the words, the communication 
within a human culture, within a human language, and so on, with all the limitations that come with that. Um, so, you know, you got uh, God is working within an ethical system, right? Always that is limited and, and bad. No human system has like the best ethics, right? Uh, and no human language has the best language or the best concepts. Um, it's like Lamb of God, right? God could have picked a million other ways uh, to to uh, think about um, uh, how to express who who Christ is, right? Uh, or even animal sacrifice. Um, you know, so I, I see a lot of these, uh, uh, the ancient practices, the ethical practices and so on that are, that are embedded in the biblical text and that the biblical text is trying to speak through um, as something that we can ask questions about. And then we have to kind of learn, we have to learn this new language, um, a cultural language to engage with. Um, so uh, uh, there's a theologian, John Webster, a reformed theologian, uh, who talks about scripture as uh, um, sanctified. Uh, meaning like it's something, it's, it's like, a, an, like a, those holy objects, right? Sanctified means being made holy. Uh, and you think about like holy objects that would go into a temple in the ancient world, like, um, you know, the lampstand, what, what, what we now call the menorah. Um, you, it's, a, it's a sacred lampstand, right? I mean, it had, to, it had to be made by human hands and then brought into something like the temple. And so it had to go through a process of sanctification, but it didn't make it perfect in the sense that people still made it. Uh, there were still imperfections in it, et cetera. And if we look at the Bible like that, um, that it is uh, the people who came into contact with God who are trying their hardest to communicate with us um, in the future, right? That's why they're writing it down and passing it on. Um, something about uh, their encounter with God, and we can learn through that. But we also, in a way, have to think about the fact that these are people writing these things in within fully embedded in human culture. Um, just one example of this, uh, I, I love uh, uh, thinking about ancient Israel as an ancient Near Eastern people, right? Uh, they, I mean, they come, at, the Bible tells us, like Abram and Sarah, they come from Mesopotamia, come from Ur of the Chaldees, right? They're fully Mesopotamian people. They believe Mesopotamian things, right? Uh, they believe there's lots of gods out there. That's what everyone believed in the ancient world. Uh, they, they believe that you, you got to sacrifice animals to talk to the gods and to, and to interact with them. That's just a common human phenomenon from the ancient world. Everyone believes this. They believe you sing songs to God about praise and lament um, in order to communicate things with God. Uh, they believe you got to have priests, right? These are fully human and culturally embedded things that God uses to speak to Abram and Sarah, but then also all the other folks throughout Israelite history, right? Um, so in Moses and uh, the Hebrews um, uh, and Aaron and Miriam and so on, they're, they're in Egypt. Uh, God uh, uh, pulls them out and calls them out. That's the Exodus. Uh, and it says in Exodus 12 that it was a mixed multitude that came out. Lots of people from all over Egypt and all over North Africa and all over uh, the, the, the sort of what we call Canaan, these Semitic peoples, they all got pulled out and they all became Israel together. And other people like Caleb, we don't even know where he comes from, but he's, he joins in and becomes a part of the community and other people too throughout history. So there's, it's, a, it's a mishmash. I mean, Israel is from the very beginning a mishmash of people from lots of different places that, believe, that have this kind of common cultural reservoir of ancient Near Eastern understandings of the world. Uh, and one thing that I, this, this blows my mind every time I see this, I'm gonna share this little uh, image here. Um, let me see if I can share. Uh, okay, so this is, uh, uh, I, I tried to find out who the artist is, but I don't know, but this is an artistic re uh, kind of a, a reconfiguration or artistic uh, drawing um, of what uh, the, the city of Nippur might have looked like. Uh, uh, it's a Sumerian city. This is the city to which many um, Judahites were taken after the exile. Uh, in 597 and then 587. So the Babylonians pulled people from Judah and put them in this city or nearby um, and settled them. Uh, and one of those people was Ezekiel. So Ezekiel uh, is brought to this city in about 597, uh, settled nearby. And this is where the river Kibar is, where he has that vision, the crazy wheels of the wheels vision. Um, but when Ezekiel is brought to this city, when he goes through the gates of this city, 
Um, we are closer in time to Ezekiel than Ezekiel was to the founding of that city to which they were brought, that Mesopotamian city. All to say, uh, the culture of the ancient Near East is rich and thick and deep uh, and was fully formed before, well before Israel even existed as a people. And they pull from this ancient reservoir. So the same would be true then of the New Testament, uh, that uh, the kind of cultural reservoir um, of Greco-Roman Judaism and Hellenistic Judaism, we might call this, uh, and th that those worlds that existed um, are, are, it's a thick and rich and deep culture through which God is trying to speak this, this word uh, and through which Paul is trying to wrestle with and communicate uh, his understanding of his encounter with Jesus. So all to say, that's, that's kind of the foundation or background of how I engage the text. Um, but uh, yeah, Chris, feel free to come back at that and, uh, and tell me yeah, wrong. So, so just, just one, one thought um, as, uh, as, we, as we sort of move into a discussion of Paul. One is um, th this idea of, of borrowing, of, of that, that the Bible necessarily uses the language and culture of the world in which it was written. Mm -hmm. um, you know, when it comes to Paul's letters, and I, I've said this somewhat flippantly in, in classes, and I'll try not to say it flippantly uh, while we're together, but, but we, we shouldn't be surprised that Paul represents the, the worldview, the view of a first century ancient Jewish male who has some, uh, some either religious or philosophical training. Um, and, and so therefore, when we read the Bible and we apply it to our contexts, there will always be some matter of translation, I think, that, that we, you know, and we do this almost automatically. Paul and, and most of the, the people in the first century, under, Jewish people in the first century, understood the, a three-storied universe. You know, if you, if you dug far enough, you would get to, to hell. And if you, if you climbed high enough, you could get to heaven. And, uh, you know, that Im implies a flat earth and, and all of these other things. And so when we read scripture, we're almost automatically translating. Like when the, when, when, when the authors talk about heaven up there um, or hell down there, we're, we're automatically doing some translation. Um, and so those are just examples, really easy examples of sort of religious and cultural concepts that are very different from our own. Mm -hmm. um, and that therefore we need to do some of this translation work. Um, and we could we can get into the 800 pound gorillas that will that will eventually make their way into the reading of Paul's letters. Um, but at the very least, we shouldn't be surprised that Paul represents this position um, as a, a person living in the first century world. And I think that we then should also be honest, as, as you've invited us to, to be honest, that maybe we don't use the same language. We don't have the same systems. We don't understand the world in the same way. And therefore, there must be this active interpretive process, this, this act of translation. There's, there's a process of, of both affirming and perhaps questioning aspects of that. And that's, that's true across the board for scripture. Um, and, and the real sort of dicey issue is that we don't all do it the same way. Uh, and so that's where we get into some, some disagreements. But I wanted to ask you, Brennan, uh, briefly, I know that you've been teaching, um, I, I've seen your videos on YouTube that you've been posting to Facebook uh, for the last several weeks that you're teaching a class on Paul, on the letters of Paul at First Press of Marietta right now in your role as a theologian in residence. And as you've been teaching, I'm wondering if you might say something about the, the two most important things that you stress in your teaching. What are the things that you would stress in your teaching? 
Yeah, thanks. Uh, that, that's a good question. And I mean, there's, uh, it has been really fun, actually, to become uh, a uh, fake New Testament professor for a little while uh, at Marietta, but they have put up with it. So I, I appreciate that in them. Um, but uh, something that jumps out at me, and, uh, you know, I took New Testament classes way back um, in seminary, uh, some with Beverly Gaventa, uh, who will be joining us later on in this, uh, this study about uh, five weeks from now. Uh, but uh, one of the things that jumps out at me now, after having spent um, years uh, working in the Old Testament primarily, and then kind of uh, in an academic sense coming back to the New Testament, um, is just this recognition uh, of some of the, the continuity between um, Paul and uh, what I think of as kind of the you know ancient Israel um, in terms of the complexity of ancient Judaism. Um, and this is to say, like we oftentimes think about religions contemporary, like you know, I, when I think about say um, Hinduism or something, I, I'll think that there's this kind of like a uh, really strict, very clear sense of orthodoxy, right? Like there's like five, what five things do all Hindus right. believe or something, yeah. right? Um, the five pillars of Islam. Right, and that's just not the case. That's just not how any religion has ever been. It's not how any religion will ever be. It's kind of like, what are the five things that make you an American? You know, everyone's going to answer that question differently, right? Uh, so uh, there may be some general overlap in some ways, but there's no like kind of massive authority who's like going to tell you what it means truly to be an American. It's always this kind of like negotiation, uh, which also involves conflict. And that's just true of all religions in history. Um, so when I look at ancient Judaism and uh, ancient Israelite religion, you know, before that, uh, I, I'm looking at a very complex phenomenon. And some of those complexities actually are the very things that, that track through into Paul's day, which make it more interesting, I think, to read them if we know about these kind of conflicts. Um, you know, one of those is, is the issue of ex exclusion and inclusion. Uh, we, we oftentimes think of religions as having very strict boundaries, right? Like, uh, like you, you're, you're on the church rolls or you're not. Um, but we all know, actually, in reality, that like, I mean, people might engage with your church in some ways and sign up for it and be a part of it and be tithing members uh, or on vestry or whatever and, uh, you know, on the session. And other people might not. Uh, so, so they might just kind of wander in every now and again. Uh, and are they part of your community or not? Right. Or there might be um, different types of communities that are next door to each other. You know, are the Methodists and the Lutherans, are they the same community or not? Right. Uh, so there's always this kind of complex negotiation that happens. And with Paul, um, uh, you can see some of these these uh, things that he's trying to work on with Gentiles and Jews. Uh, this seems to be a huge, huge issue for Paul. And we'll jump into more of this as the weeks go on. But just for me, that jumps out that um, this issue of like, what is really, what, what is, what does Judaism mean? Right? That's a question that is alive today too. But it, I mean, as far back as you can go, like, what does it mean to be an Israelite? That's always been an open question. So Caleb, I mentioned a bit earlier, joins, he kind of, he's from somewhere else, right? Is he a true Israelite or not? Um, and uh, other people like the Gibeonites, the city uh, in this group of people in, uh, in Judges, um, in Joshua, I mean, who, who happen to kind of uh, wheedle their way into the community um, and become part of Israel. Are they true Israelites or not, right? It's always this kind of big question. And then Judahites, are they Israelites or not, right? There's just kind of like, who's who and what's what? Um, and then uh, as you go further on into time, there's the, the after the exile, there's the restoration. And this is a huge moment of conflict in the community. Who's really a, a, in charge? Who's allowed back in? Who's, who's allowed to help rebuild the temple? So you get books like um, uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, which have a very exclusionistic uh, view. That is that there's a strict like, barrier to entry. You got to be part of the Jewish community. You got you to be born into it. You got you to actually be able to pick out, if you want to be a priest, you got to pick out your name on the genealogical roles. That's why genealogies are so important in the Old Testament is that this is like they literally have to point out like this is my name and, and in the book of Ezra some of these priests can't point out their names on the genealogical roles and so they aren't allowed to be priests anymore so that that was a, a very exclusionistic kind of practice and then in Ezra and Nehemiah obviously the, both those books end with this um, uh, 
uh, tragic to me, heartbreaking um, exclusion of uh, what were understood to be, at least by some, foreign women and children. And it's really important for us to see that um, there's this really important conversation in biblical studies and, and in uh, uh, kind of more broadly, even in the Bible itself, about are these really foreign people? Uh, these people of the land actually might be the people who were left behind after the exile, during the exile, and they're the people who've been living there the whole time. They're, they think of themselves as being good Jews. And all of a sudden, these people return from exile, and they're, they're setting up shop, and you know, the people are asking, can we, can we join you in rebuilding the temple? And they're, they're told no in some way. So um, this conflict about identity it has two sides to it, I think. I think sometimes we're quick to judge Ezra and Nehemiah, and I think the exclusion of women and children, of course, is heartbreaking and tragic. But there's a sense where there are some communities of people where they're, they're, they're minoritized, Right, so Ezra and Nehemiah um, are in a minority community. They have been uh, uh, taken away from their land and then returned to it, but in the midst of crisis and uh, and trauma and grief. But also uh, that there's a threat uh, from surrounding uh, groups of people who want to now kind of poach upon um, the newly refounded Judahite community. Uh, so Jerusalem feels like it's you know it's it's under stress and in danger and so on. And in those times, some people do want to close kind of close ranks and uh, and and not let people into the community who they don't trust because they might be taken advantage of or exploited. Um, so we can see this in modern minoritized communities too. Uh, but, but also there's this uh, second kind of counterbalancing voice in ancient Judaism. Um, we see this uh, in books like Ruth. Uh, so some voices say, don't let those Moabite women in, they're awful. Uh, and then we see this in Deuteronomy even, don't let those Moabite women in. Uh, but in the book of Ruth, obviously, we have to let the Moabite women in, or David doesn't exist. And then, you know, if you're a Christian, Jesus doesn't exist, right? We see that in Matthew's uh, uh, genealogy in chapter one. Yeah, so, so this uh, sense that, um, that the identity within the group, uh, who's included, who's not included, is really important. And then in Isaiah, we have this really important voice that says, don't, if the Gentiles, if the outsiders want to join this community, do not kick them out. And also, you're not allowed to kick out eunuchs, anyone who doesn't look like you, who doesn't seem like they fit in because of where they come from or what their bodies look like or, uh, you know, who they happen to love, right? All those things um, uh, in Isaiah are uh, uh, kind of a, 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 they've been made a question mark. And Isaiah says, don't exclude those folks. If you want to read that, it's in Isaiah 56. But also in Isaiah, we see this uh, kind of repeating um, joyful vision of the future when uh, uh Starting Isaiah chapter two is a good example of this uh, verses one through four, where the nations are all called. Um, they're not forced to come, like to give tribute, but they're called to come to Jerusalem to find wisdom uh, and strength and to share uh, their their the kind of the, the bounty of the world with other people. Kind of in a way, um, this is the kind of the end vision of what I see in Genesis twelve verses one through four with the call of Abram and Sarah, um, where they're called out. Uh, in order that the whole purpose of this calling and of making Israel a nation even is that the, all the, the nations of the earth may be blessed in you. And that's in uh, Genesis 12, verse 4. Um, so that, that, that this is a, a really important kind of conversation, right? What's the end point of our religion? And one stream is this inclusion of all the nations in it. So I see that as really important just coming from my Old Testament background. Um, the second thing was just uh, real quick, these different concepts like justification, sin, salvation, those are always contested words, right? In the ancient, in ancient Jewish, uh, in the ancient Israelite uh, texts in, from the Old Testament, um, just like identity is always contested, uh, all these big terms are always contested. What does sin mean? What does righteousness mean? What does justification mean? Uh, those have been uh, contested concepts since the beginning. So Paul is making a claim about these concepts in the midst of a conversation. So to know some of that 
background really helps. And that's what we'll be digging into in the next few weeks, I think at least. Um, but so Chris, let me just uh, throw this uh, back to you though. Uh, if, we, if we try to kind of forget a little bit about what we know, uh, what we think we know about biblical texts, it always helps us. Um, so can you just give us like a, 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 a quick intro to Paul? Uh, yeah. Just to kind of give us a sense of, of who Paul is and some of these big issues with Paul's letters. And can I just start by asking you, I've always been really interested when I read the book of Acts, uh, kind of the second half of Luke, right? Or whatever, Luke part two. Uh, when I read the book about, of Acts, I get a picture of Paul that sometimes when I read his letters carefully, I, it doesn't always match up exactly. So like the conflict with Peter that happened in Antioch, right? In Acts, this looks a little different than it does when Paul talks about it. So, but also Paul's own, like kind of what he says about him, he never says he's from Tarsus in his letters, but the Acts does. Can you give us a little bit of a kind of background and bio of Paul, but also help us to sort through some of these uh, major issues? Yeah, yeah. So I'll, I'll respond to the, thanks for that. I'll respond to the first question about, about the letters and Acts. And then um, I'll just give a brief sort of um, orientation to, to Paul, four factors of Paul's life using a passage from the book of Galatians. Uh, and, and hopefully that'll, that'll get, us, get us going, get the wheels going for our study of Paul and Philippians. Um, but I think the, the first thing to note about, about the, the Paul of his letters, that's the way scholars refer to it, and the Paul of Acts, is that there are some significant areas of overlap between the two sources. So, for example, in both Acts and Paul's letters, um, Paul's Jewish background, his Jewish identity is indisputable. Um, he, he never stops being Jewish in either uh, his letters or um, or in the book of Acts. And that's, I think, really important. The other is, um, in both Acts and his letters, there is some recognition that Paul had some sort of encounter with the risen Christ. Um, Paul gives this story three different times in the book of Acts. Uh, he sort of testifies to it three different times with very, with some nuances and some differences within each of those accounts. And what Paul describes, for example, in Galatians 1 is very brief. He just calls it a revelation of Christ. Um, and so we don't have the narrative of traveling. We don't have, you know, so there are elements where maybe Acts has added to the story or has filled out the story, but the stories are both there in, in Acts and in Paul's letters. The other area of, of overlap that I think is really significant is that we see Paul and co-workers. We see Paul traveling with Barnabas. We see Paul and Timothy. We see Paul and, and this issue with John Mark. Um, and that and if we, if we open up Paul's letters, one of the things that I think readers often miss, and scholars often miss even, is that Paul was a, a working with companions. Paul had traveling companions. Paul had co-authors in many of his letters. Um, and so we see that there's some areas of overlap um, between the Paul of, of his letters and the Paul of Acts. Um, but when we think, think also of some, some significant differences, um, First of which is that Acts makes no mention of Paul, the letter writer. Um, you know, we encounter Paul first and foremost as a letter writer, and there is no account of Paul writing letters in the book of Acts. Acts does actually contain some embedded letters um, from, the, from the Roman officials to one another, but there's no embedded letter from, from Paul. That would, be, would have been great. And so um, that's a significant difference. Um, Acts also has this this practice of Paul almost 
um, without exception, of going first to a synagogue in whichever new city that he's traveling to, preaching there first. He's ultimately rejected, and then he finds a more um, a more approachable or more acceptable hearing um, among among the Gentiles. And uh, this is this is somewhat different than where, where when we read Paul's letters. He has an almost exclusive focus on ministering to the Gentiles, of, of, of proclaiming the good news about a crucified Messiah to communities of Gentiles. And now these Gentiles may have been affiliated or associated with a synagogue, but it's, it's clear that, that Paul, especially in Galatians, we'll see, um, sees that, that Peter had a particular mission to the Israelites and that Paul's ministry was to the Gentiles. In addition, we, we can say that there's some, there some problems that scholars and, and interpreters have with the timelines and the itineraries. Um, Paul writes letters to communities that, that Acts doesn't have him visiting, um, and then Paul visits communities and Acts that he, we don't have letters for, right? And so there's just gaps in both. I think that um, as we think about how do we make sense of these differences, how do we interpret these differences, um, the first thing we make sense of is that Paul's letters are occasional. Paul is writing to whatever fire needs to be put out in the moment. Um, and so we shouldn't think that Paul has, that we would have access to all of the letters that Paul has written or that Paul would write to every community that he has founded. Um, and in this way, um, in many ways, what, what the, the letters that we have in the New Testament it's kind of an accident of history or for a theological perspective, it's a, it's a result of God's sovereignty because there's, there are other letters. Paul mentions other letters that he has written, for example, to the Corinthians that we no longer have. We just don't have access to them. And so um, we need to be, we need to be sort of, um, I think a little bit humble in, in that recognition that we only have access to so much of Paul's thinking and in his writing. Um, and the other is that Luke is himself an author. Um, the, you know, the, the, the author of, of Acts was writing with certain rhetorical and theological purposes. And if you, if you study the speeches in Acts, whether it's Peter or Philip or Stephen or Paul, there's some threads of consistency through all of these speeches, which suggest to many scholars Luke's rhetorical and theological purposes, not that these are sort of word-for-word um, uh, -word accounts of actual speeches that, that Paul said or, or that, that Peter said. And in the world of ancient history writing, this is completely acceptable. It's to be expected, but it kind of can, can strike us as a little bit odd as 21st century readers because we have a certain notion of history. We have a certain notion of, of, of somebody giving a speech. So I think that, I think that that's, that's probably enough about Paul and Acts. I want to uh, briefly uh, transition to this activity um, called a four on Paul. Um, and, and this is something that I've introduced several times uh, in my New Testament introduction classes. And I'm going to go ahead and share something on So free to join along with me in this document that I'm sharing. I just shared it now, Chris, I'm, I'm, um, I'm, I'm losing sure I'm my... losing audio a little bit. Uh, I think from the storm, um, we're we're all here in the south uh, uh, under a pretty big uh, thunderstorm. But um, so you're saying that you're you're uh, sharing uh, the document here that it's going to have four things about Paul, right? That's right. That's right. Can you hear me now, Brennan? Yes, gotcha. Got it. Okay, I, my internet might have gone through a little bit of instability, um, and so 
the, the four things that I invite my students to think about when they, they read Paul, any part of Paul's letters, um, is Paul the Jew, Paul the persecutor, Paul encountered, Paul apostle to the Gentiles. Those are the four things that, that I sort of remind people to, to keep in mind and to come back to. And in this very important passage from Galatians, we see all four of these at work. Um, and I know this is a study of Philippians. What am I doing in Galatians? But just follow me here. Trust me here. Um, so I'm going to read and, and just sort of tease out some, some of these pieces. Um, this is from Galatians 1, 13 through 2, 10. Uh, he says, you have heard no doubt of my earlier life in Judaism. I was violently persecuting the church of God and was trying to destroy it. I advanced in Judaism beyond many among the people of the same age, for I was far more zealous for the traditions of my ancestors. But when God, who had set me apart before I was born and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me so that I might proclaim him among the Gentiles, I did not confer with any human being, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were already apostles before me, but I went away at once into Arabia, and afterwards I returned to Damascus. So here in this one paragraph from Galatians, we have Paul noting that, that he had an earlier life in Judaism. And I think New Testament scholars would debate whether or not he ever left that. And if we would go to other letters like Romans, it's clear that he still identifies himself as um, a member of Judaism. He still talks about his, his relatives or his kinsfolk who are Jewish, uh, at, for example, in Romans 16. Um, but that he had a particular strand of Judaism. He was particularly zealous, he says, for, for the traditions of his elders. And this, uh, Paul will describe in Philippians chapter 3, as we'll see in a couple weeks, as uh, his Pharisaic orientation. He was a member of the Pharisees. And so, um, you know, he never, he never leaves Judaism, and he had this zeal for the traditions that, for whatever reason, led him then to become Paul the persecutor. Both in Acts and in Paul's letters, we see that Paul is a persecutor of the church. He was, he was after the church, um, and, and scholars can debate about why, but one of them is this, this scandal of the crucified Messiah. Um, this is something that Luke Johnson has, has sort of nailed into my head. He's a emeritus professor at Emory University and also was the advisor for my dissertation. Um, but that, that Paul, what, what really miffed Paul was that these Christians were going around and saying that Jesus, who, who had been publicly crucified, was somehow raised to the right hand of God and was sharing in the very life of God. That would be blasphemous. And in Galatians, Paul even says, scripture is clear on this. That, that anyone who hangs on a cross, anyone who hangs from a tree, is, is a visible sign of God's curse. This person has been cursed by God. And how can you say that this person is exalted to the right hand of God? It would have been utterly sort of blasphemous for Paul. And that then so much of his sort of his, his reformation of thinking about this, about this, um, this guy named Jesus is, requires him to sort of reread scripture and re-understand uh, some of the traditions that he was so zealous for and passionate about. And so that then leads to uh, the, the third thing, right? That Paul had this encounter with Christ. Um, and I use the language of encounter rather than conversion, because I don't think that Paul is converting his, um, his religious orientation to another deity. 
It's not like he goes from being a worshiper of Yahweh to being a worshiper of Zeus. He comes to worship the God of Israel, perhaps in a new way, but he never changes that religious affiliation. And so I think the language of Paul encountered, or even the language of Paul called, you can see in verse 15 from Galatians that Paul uses this language of being called. Um, and so there's, there's this idea that he is encountered and it is, is transformational, but I don't think that it's a conversion. I think that's the wrong language to, to describe it. Yes, so and then Chris, the last uh, thing that I'll point out, um, the, the final four is Paul apostle to the Gentiles. And we see this um, even in this first paragraph, right? That, that he is uh, clearly sent to proclaim the mission to the Gentiles. And Brennan, you brought this up from Isaiah. And I think that there's a lot of, there's a, there's a lot of insight into thinking that Paul understands his preaching ministry as a fulfillment of this Isaiah prophecy that the nations, the Gentiles, all the other nations would stream to the God of Israel, would stream to uh, and bring their resources to the God of Israel. And so um, we see at the end of this passage from Galatians, and I'll just, I'll just scroll down, that, that later, some 17 years later, Paul finally goes up and has a conversation with Peter. And they agree that like Peter will go to the Jews and Paul will go to the Gentiles. Um, and that the, the Jerusalem apostles ask only one thing, that, that, that Paul would remember the poor, which is probably a reference to the, the poor Christians in Jerusalem. And, and he says, oh, I'm eager to do that. And that, that sort of connects with Paul's desire for fundraising among these Gentile communities. Um, the collection for Jerusalem is what it's known in scholarly circles, because he believes that by preaching the, the good news to these Gentile communities, by saying, you are now engrafted into this branch of Israel, um, he is bringing to fulfillment this, this great promise of Isaiah, which is rooted for Paul um, primarily and significantly in the resurrection of Jesus, because the resurrection of Jesus, that God has raised Jesus from the, from the dead, is for Paul a sign that the new age has begun. So those are the four things that I would emphasize in, in a teaching on Paul. And, I, and I've given myself a plus one, um, which is Paul the co-worker. Um, and so we see even here in 2.1 that Paul mentions Barnabas and Titus. And so uh, that, again, we often have, and I'm going to bring, hopefully this image comes through. We often have this image of Paul in our minds as this solitary, thoughtful thinker, right? Uh, this, is a, this is a famous portrait of Paul sort of in a dark room with a book opened. And this, I think, is more often than not how we imagine Paul. And we read his letters as if he's this systematic thinker. He's a consistent thinker. And above all, he's all by himself in a room by candlelight. And as I've taught Paul again and again in seminary contexts, I've wondered if it's not better for us to think more of Paul as this picture of William Barber III, right? Yet yeah, he's in the front, but he's surrounded by other coworkers, other influencers. And so when we think about reading Paul's letters, it's really important for us to keep in mind, Paul was not in some room all by himself. Paul was in conversation and in dialogue with other coworkers and with other communities that he had been working with. Yeah, that's uh, really powerful, Chris. Thanks. And this also kind of uh, uh, feeds into another big question that I was going to ask. I mean, I have my own thoughts about this from being an Old Testament scholar and kind of how this works in the ancient Near East. But 
what was uh, what were the presumptions of authorship? Uh, so Paul writes these letters, but I notice when I look at, at the beginnings of them that he's often the first name listed, but he's often not the only name listed. Um, and so he's clearly writing this with other people. And you read like Galatians six, and he's writing with like big handwriting. Like he says, "Oh, look at my own hands." Right. So there's clearly other people involved in this process. And I'm just wondering, like. Um, Paul is a co-worker who's working with other people for other people. We got to imagine he's got this retinue, like a huge group of people who are like in this network working with him. And he names them all the time at the beginnings and ends of letters. Um, but what does this mean for our notion of Paul as like someone who wrote all these letters, right? The author, because like we think of like copyright and like uh, uh, plagiarism. We have all these modern conceptions of what it means to be an author. But how, what's your take on that? Yeah, I think that's, I think it's first, it's really important for us just to name uh, that our notions of authorship are very recent um, in the sense of plagiarism, copyright. You know, you and I have dealt with students who don't quite understand plagiarism. And so they don't understand that it's, you know, not okay to sort of lift text from one thing and put it in their own paper as if it's their own words. But, you know, that's, I think the ancient world had a much more fluid understanding of this. Um, and so we, we, we want, I think, to at least name those differences that uh, we associate authorship with what an individual has physically written or typed. Um, but but I, I love what you said, that when you open the, the letters of Paul, first of all, m most of them are not solo authored. Um, the majority of Paul's letters are written where somebody else is a part of the conversation. And I think that there's dominant streams of scholarship that still sort of relativize or even negate those voices. But I think a maximalist perspective would say, wow, what if Titus really did have a role in writing this letter? What would that look like? How would that change our understanding of Paul's letters? How would that change our understanding of theology if all of a sudden theology wasn't just one person working things out and then spitting them up? But what if theology was worked out in conversation? And, and so I want to take seriously the fact that, that Paul co-authors many of his letters. The other thing is um, we have evidence from Romans 16 that Paul is using a scribe. Paul is using, he's using an amnesis, somebody who is, who is writing for him. Now, what is, how, how does that work uh, when we think about Paul authorship? Is he, is he dictating this letter? And if so, a, a letter as long as Romans would have taken would have taken weeks, if not months, to dictate. And so, is it possible that Paul is going back to you know revisit with his scribe, maybe? Or is it? Uh, we were talking yesterday, last night, Brennan, and you were talking about Romans seven that Paul sort of argues his way into a corner and then sort of like backs out of it. And that totally makes sense if he's if he's sort of doing more of a conversational thing rather than like this is the hundredth draft of Romans because he has a word document that he can easily copy and paste and create a new one right it's just I think it's important for us to um, name and notice the, our modern sense of authorship and then and then move forward the last thing that I would say about authorship and this this comes directly from from Luke Johnson's introduction in the New Testament um, is the, the idea that, that Paul authorizes all of his letters, even if he didn't author them. And I always use the example here of presidential speeches, um, that any, president, any good presidential speech has, has you know, some several or dozens of authors who are working together to make it, to make it you know, plausible, to 
make sure all of the policy is good and up to date, but also to make sure that it sounds a lot like the president delivering it. And so behind the scenes, there's all sorts of activity going on in a speech writer, right, for speech writing. But once the president delivers that speech, it's the president's speech. And I think that there's something similar in Paul's letters that um, that they they they've been authorized by Paul. This is what Luke Johnson would say, um, even if they haven't all been physically written by Paul. Um, and I think that there's at least some good um, some good thinking there. And and there's a lot more complexity to this question, but I'll leave it there um, as well. Yeah, thanks, and that's that's really helpful. And I I love how uh, that one of the themes that we've uh, inadvertently created uh, and, and discovered over the course of, of our time together this morning is that uh, theology and uh, uh, talk about God um, doesn't happen in a vacuum. Uh, you know, like that image of Paul, right, sitting alone, of course, like figured like, a, like an old white guy, you know, sitting there writing, uh, you know, uh, kind of with his with all his wisdom, right, uh, a, solit a solitary, isolated uh, genius, right? Um, what we discover is that uh, theology is always happening in the middle of a conversation and that Paul, we, we read him in the middle of a conversation, but also as part, like the letters themselves are internally a conversation among people. Um, we can move away from this idea that like our job as readers is to isolate the, tr the one truth of this and know it ourselves and then tell other people it like, like we're geniuses, right? Um, instead, the point is to start and be, become a part of and join in with this larger conversation right. um, and, and uh, be informed by others, right? And uh, kind of, in a way, shift in response to them. And part of that has to do too with Paul's, Paul's always writing these letters in response to and in dialogue with these communities, right? This, um, uh, so he's never writing like, just a systematic theology book that everyone in the history of the world is supposed to pick up and read exactly the same way, right? These are letters that are wrestling with these communities, and sometimes Paul's wrestling himself with some of these issues on the way, right? I mean, how, yeah, uh, yeah. And it, and so, so he doesn't really have a single message, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, so, so I want to, I'm going to hold up two, two comments from the that have been made on Facebook. Right. One by, 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 by Aisha uh, about about the, the idea of collaborative and how important that sort of Paul as a collaborator, Paul as a coworker, and how significant that is in our moment uh, as a church universal in this COVID crisis, mm -hmm. the need for collaboration and revisiting collaboration. Uh, and then also Ross Reddick makes a comment about uh, what would it look like for us to, to co-author with the ones at church? Uh, that the proclamation of, of, of the word on Sunday mornings is more of a collaborative and co-authorship rather than a single voice. I think that's, I think that's really important. Um, one of the ways that, that I've sort of been, you know, entertaining this in recent years is, is thinking about Paul more as a local theologian mm. um, rather than as Paul as a sort of systematic theologian. And the local theology has a, has a lot to do with theological reflection and conversation and engaging um, in, in sort of embodied and lived practices. Um, I think we, we do ourselves a disservice when we think that, that, that one, we have access to a singular theology of Paul if we study all of his letters. Um, and, and two, that we, if we don't see this sort of situational nature. Uh, Joette Basler, a, a New Testament theologian, has at, at, at one of her introductory text, uh, chapters has this great line that I'm going to just destroy, but I'll paraphrase it, which is, um, she says, I'm not at all sure that Paul had a theology. 
um, or at least one that we can recover. But it's very clear that Paul was doing theology. He was theologizing. And so I invite my students to see his letters as works of theology, as acts of theology, as uh, examples, artifacts of theological reflection, rather than as, as a mind for us to sort of like dig into and get behind so that we see like the theology that was, you know, being applied in this situation. I think it's much better to say, what kind of moves is Paul making? How is Paul using experience or presuppositions or arguments to do theology? Um, because then it opens up the way for us to be theologians uh, in our own context as we respond to God's revelation uh, in and in around us. That's a great point. Yeah, we're not just trying to kind of isolate ideas that we can then like kind of one size fits all stamp onto everyone. Right. Uh, uh, but instead that we are still involved in this ongoing process of conversation that God uh, is, God's still working in the world, right? Uh, and as Christians, we believe through scripture and through the way that ways that we encounter scripture and engage it, but that's always going to be with others uh, and in the midst of others and in the midst of our own culture and our own concepts. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and one, one example that I go back to again and again, like most Christians that I know in the 21st century, when they go to Kroger or Publix or, uh, or Whole Foods and they, and they are getting a steak, they're not asking the question whether or not that steak was sacrificed to pagan gods. Right. Um, and so, and yet that's like a dominant issue in the Corinth, in, in first Corinthians. And so what we, what we go to first Corinthians for is not, okay, you know, I'm worried about whether or not this meat's been sacrificed to idols, but it's how does Paul navigate this concern? What moves does he make? How does, what does he consider so that we can make similar moves in our own theologizing, in our own acts of theology? Yeah. So, um, Look, Brennan, it is 1028. We yes. promised these people to be off at 1030. So yes. we, you should probably tell them about what's coming next week. Yes. And real quick, just to say, we have a cool conversation happening in the comments. Uh, April Love Fordham, Andy Acton, uh, Aaron MC um, uh, are bringing up uh, the question of like, how do we think about um, proclamation and witness and uh, revelation even? Uh, how, how do we think about these concepts um, together? And how do we think about um, talking about Paul's letters and doing theology together in our communities. It's often understood that like the pastor does the theology for everyone or does the speaking for everyone, does the interpreting for everyone, but how do we actually do that in practice, right? Um, and, uh, some folks like Andy have some ideas, uh, but I'd love to see in the comments uh, other people's ideas, even after we're done with this, uh, just kind of continue the conversation here. Um, uh, but also, I want to lift up uh, Ashley Scott Kane. She's got a couple of great comments um, about the nature of revelation and uh, uh, experience. Uh, so, like, what are we actually talking about that Paul had, and what are we talking about that we actually have? That, that could be a live conversation over the next few weeks um, when we talk about our, our experience of God, our relationship with God, and so on. Um, uh, and in the ancient world, they had some different ideas than a lot of people do today. Um, but so, next week, uh, thank you so much to everyone who's joined us this time. I had a ton of fun. Chris, thanks so much for guiding us through Paul. Um, next week, uh, we'll be here at the same time, same place, uh, 930 uh, Eastern Standard Time here on Facebook. I'm going to upload this to YouTube as well, so you can share it with folks uh, that aren't on Facebook. Um, look for the Office Hours um, uh, link that I'm, uh, for our YouTube playlist that I'm going to post uh, after I'm done uploading this video. Um, but next week, join us same time, same place with Eric Barreto, uh, professor of New Testament uh, at uh, Princeton Theological Seminary. 
a fantastic scholar, a wonderful person, uh, someone who is a great speaker and uh, kind of in, uh, public, he's a public theologian. He engages um, in issues of the day. Uh, and so he's not just locked in a stuffy ivory tower over there in Princeton, like some people are. I'm just kidding. I love everyone at Princeton Theological Seminary. Um, but, but all to say, this is going to be a great conversation and we look forward to engaging you then. Um, be sure to take a look at that syllabus that we've got. Um, uh, uh, register at that link below and uh, try to, over the next week, where our encouragement is to try to read Philippians in one sitting all the way through. It's a short letter. You can do it and just try to feel like what, what if you were receiving this as a letter that somebody was sending to you personally, right? Um, what's their situation? What's your situation? And just the ways that you can engage with that will be helpful to bring next week. And uh, also uh, just to point out one thing on the syllabus, um, uh, Chris uh, Holmes has uh, a, um, a video before you read lecture on Philippians. So you can watch that just a few minutes long uh, to kind of set the stage a bit uh, for Philippians. Uh, Chris, you got anything else to share before we go? Yeah, so I just uh, I just like spit out a, a bunch of comments into the comment section on Facebook. Um, I provided a, the link to the Before You Read lecture on Philippians. Great. I also said that for those who register for the sort of the resources part of the class, we'll be providing access to a scanned copy of Philippians from the New Interpreter Study Bible, mm -hmm. um, which is one of the, the many good study Bibles that's out there. Yes. Um, and I also uh, provided a link to a, 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 a video lecture that I created for another context about how to make the most out of your study Bible. Um, there are some really significant resources in a study Bible that many of us just don't simply know how to use. And so I right. um, wanted to provide that, and I'm happy to post it later on the, uh, the Office Hours uh, a Facebook group as well. But I think that's all. We're super stoked to get into Philippians next week. We'll be joined by Eric Barreto. It's going to be a really good time. Um, thanks to everyone who joined. Brennan, we had at, at some point I saw as many as uh, 252, 200, 260 people. So uh, thanks to everyone who joined. Yeah. Come back next week. Bring a friend. Uh, and uh, we're going to dig into Philippians. Uh, in, in a socially distanced way, right? Right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Don't literally, bring, <laughs> Don't your literally bring your friend into your house. Yeah. No. Um, well, uh, and, and we're, we're going to be uh, keep all of y'all. Um, we, we don't know all your names uh, quite yet, but uh, we're going to keep y'all in prayer and uh, uh, stay safe, uh, wash your hands, um, and uh, remember that God loves you. Uh, we'll see Amen. you all uh, next week. Uh, all right, and I'm going to end the live stream. I'm learning lots right. about technology these days. Oh, by the way, next week, will I wear the, 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 the cardigan the grand and have the grandpa mug? I don't know. We'll see next I week. I might have a cardigan next week and no grandpa mug. We'll see. We'll see. All right. Bye. Bye.